We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. If this is the best I've been on this podcast, I don't, I don't know what that says. I will say that. My my favorite moments with you on this podcast are usually when you're in some kind of delirious state. <laughs> For whatever that's whatever that's worth. <laughs> oh, you mean when I like blacked out and fully didn't remember our entire Two Towers episode? Exactly. Which was probably your best episode, <laughs> in, in my f- humble opinion. Thank you, thank you. I mean, maybe that's a backhanded compliment because... <laughs> Is suggesting you're more eloquent when you're unconscious, apparently. <laughs> when I just, like, for some reason, am so frazzled that the next day I'm like, did did I podcast? <laughs> did that happen? <laughs> well, I don't know. I, you know, there's a, a long history of creative folk out there who... Well, I think that relied on altered states of mind to get where they need to go. There's like a big difference between like, I don't know, getting drunk or whatever and just being so frazzled that you just like <laughs> apparently don't remember a podcast. Uh... I'm exaggerating. I do remember bits and parts of it. It's just like so funny when I listen to it. I was like, I don't remember this part of the conversation at all. <laughs> Anywho. Speaking of forgetting, uh-huh. because we do have a forgetful character in this book we're about to talk about. Ah, yes. Nice segue. Yeah, I'm working with what I've got. Uh, how, is it my turn? Yeah, it's got to be my turn. Yes. Yes, it's my turn. You could just hear the, like, gears in my head spinning mm-hmm. as I'm trying to figure this out. Come on, you stupid brain! Work! It's working! Uh, hello, and welcome to Reread, the podcast where we reread some of our favorite and not so favorite books from childhood and talk about them. And on this episode, we're we're uh, talking about because <laughs> I guess this is turning into uh, the Morgan Ninth Grade series. We're going to be talking about <laughs> John Steinbeck's Of Mice and Men. Kind of funny how that worked out. <laughs> This is also, I feel like, the first one in a while where we have had, like, very opposed opinions going in. You love Steinbeck. I do love Steinbeck. He is... I'm, I'm calculating right now. Is he Is he my favorite author, indeed? I will say he's one of my favorite authors. But what is true, and will always be true, is that East of Eden will forever be my favorite book. And you, on the other hand, apparently hate nature because you hate Steinbeck. I do. Although I will qualify (laughs) that by saying that like this is my major exposure to Steinbeck. Like I read this and I think I read some other short stuff. If you live in California, you inevitably run into like a lot of like Steinbeck and Mark Twain and Jack London. They're just like, you know, because it's California. And, uh, I don't like any of those three authors, but <laughs> um, I'm guessing the other one you probably read because I know everyone read this is the Pearl 
Like in middle school, maybe? No, I don't believe I did. Uh, well, consider yourself lucky. Okay, so this is the thing about Steinbeck. He has some of the highest highs. I love East of Eden. I love Cannery Row. But he also has some of the lowest of lows. The Pearl is a terrible book that they made us read in eighth grade. And this is a very obscure Steinbeck, which I only read because I love Steinbeck. But one of the worst books I've ever read, period, was a book called Burning Bright by Steinbeck, which is he had this weird thing. And we can talk about it with this book, too, where he tried to combine the mediums of a stage play with a novel. And he was weirdly fascinated with this experiment of his. And for the most part, it never worked. Of Mice and Men is an example of that. It's probably one of the lighter examples. Like, you wouldn't necessarily pick up on it if you didn't mm. know beforehand. But there are some elements that feel very much like a play. Like you're reading a play. <laughs> anyway, rant done. Please continue about your hatred for Steinbeck. Yeah. So <laughs> this book uh, I read, as you alluded to, first quarter of ninth grade. So this was the first book that was like my in my high school English experience. First book we read. And we spent the entire quarter on it. And so we watched a lot of movies about Steinbeck and his life and lots about the history of California at this time, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, like, that, weirdly, I do remember vividly is all that other stuff, <laughs> which is funny because as we talked about with both Romeo and Juliet and with To Kill a Mockingbird, although, again, we spent an entire quarter on them, I remember little to nothing of my actual learning experience. Mm -hmm. But I do remember quite a bit of, of Mice and Men, especially because I believe my teacher also loved Steinbeck, and so he was nerding out hard. Mm. And I read this book. And I hated it with a burning passion. <laughs> and we can get more into why I hated it as we go on. I will say on this reread, I think I actually disliked it more. Mm. I think we've had the reaction of me going from just being like, oh, I don't like it to me being like, I actively really hate this book. So I'm sure we'll get into it. But I mean, there's a certain amount of it that is subjective, right? Like I personally, as a reader, there are certain topics that just don't tend to draw me in and you're going to have a much harder time convincing me to find them interesting. <laughs> a lot of that, unfortunately. And I don't know if it's because it was like introduced to me in this way, but like I was saying, like if you're growing up in California, there's certain topics that are going to be more pushed on you <laughs> and types of like short stories that are going to be more pushed on you when you're a kid than others. Cause they're like, they want you to know about California history and stuff. And generally most stuff that's talking about like late 1800s, early 1900s, whatever, California, I just find really boring. <laughs> I will admit that Steinbeck starts out having an uphill battle because this is not, this uh, description of these sort of like migrant workers and, and stuff is not something I find personally interesting to read about. That's not saying I couldn't be convinced if I really enjoyed the writing style, the prose, the characters, any of that. But I don't. <laughs> I have no particular connection to Steinbeck's writing style. I really dislike most of his characters and plots. So for me, this was just kind of a amalgamation of a lot of things that I 
don't like, and also some stuff that I think is objectively not good. Mm. Which we can get into more. I'll try and keep my subjective side out of it as much as possible. Oh, why would you ever do that? <laughs> uh, yeah, how can I f- possibly follow up that rant? <laughs> this is hard for me. I Because, okay, as I said, I love Steinbeck. I actually love the way he writes. I love the way he he can take mundane details and give them this kind of air that's that's almost sacred or that's not the right word there's just something wondrous in in these details and the way he sees his hometown of salinas the way way he paints it as this place that's i mean you see more of this in east of eden where he mm-hmm. literally casts it as a modern day eden and you see a lot of the beauty of the landscape itself and and i think he's really good at placing you in a place and making you feel like you can see the wonder of it too because anyone who's driven up or down the 101 they i feel like their impression of salinas is that it's just boring farmlands steinbeck pushes us to to look at the landscape again and and that's something i really appreciate about him as much as i love steinbeck this is the first time i've reread of mice and men in my entire life there mm. it's uh this is not my favorite in my opinion it's very minor steinbeck and in some ways i i'm offended that that the books that were given to us in school by steinbeck to read were always the either very bad aka the pearl or just kind of middling aka of mice and men and and we just did not read his actual best works. We did read Grapes of Wrath, which... I was going to ask you about that, because I know, like, I didn't personally have to read it, but, oh. like, I know my mom also really doesn't like most of the California authors. This might be genetic, but she had to read mm. Grapes of Wrath in high school. Well, actually, no, I think she had to read it in middle school. I don't know. This was obviously further back. Yeah. But, like, she has held this lasting hatred for that book that is unrivaled by her hatred for, like, a few other books. I think that and The Scarlet Letter are, like, the two that she's, like... <laughs> oh, no, wait. Actually, no, she liked The Scarlet Letter, and that was wait, one of our complexes that I hated The Scarlet Letter, but she remembered liking it. I should warn you, sir. My mother is a little eccentric anyhow moving on i was gonna ask you about grapes of wrath yes uh grapes of wrath i think historically it's an important text because it covers the great depression and it offered a perspective of of a specific group of people that were being vilified at the time but that's also a book i've never reread so I can't really speak to how it stands up in regards to everything else. It's certainly better than Of Mice and Men, and definitely much better than The Pearl. But I just happened to like read East of Eden on my own, and thank God I did, because that book really... Uh, it's I, I could talk about that book, but we're not talking about that book. <laughs> we're talking about Of Mice and Men. There's some context, actually, that's kind of related to Grapes of Wrath. 
there's some context that we should give before we get into this where so this was the second book in what was considered Steinbeck's Dust Bowl trilogy covering basically migrant workers uh, during the Great Depression. And a thing we should note about Steinbeck is that Steinbeck, a frontiersman through and through, a man that every man wants to be and every woman wants to be with, an all-American hero, was actually... A dirty communist. A radical. A go That's right. A, a commie. A pinko. A red. You have not read Grapes of Wrath, but I, I'll just... That book was basically a communist manifesto cast as this sort of down-home, all-American kind of story. You can see that Steinbeck is... <laughs> he very much expects that a revolution was going to happen in America. That didn't turn out to be the case. But anyway, when I was taught of Mice and Men in school, nobody told me that Steinbeck was a communist. And I feel like that would have been pretty good context to have in order to read what he's saying about these characters who are all working class. Mm. We'll get into that. The other, <laughs> the other important piece of context is a bit of trivia you shared with me. Which is the most yes! delightful trivia about a book, perhaps in all of existence. So would you be so kind to share yes. it? Yes. <laughs> I discovered this on Wikipedia. Thank you, Wikipedia. But apparently, an early draft of Of Mice and Men was eaten by Steinbeck's dog, Max. <laughs> and all I can say is that Max was trying to do the Lord's work. Um... Uh... He was like, listen, Starbuck, the world doesn't need this book. <laughs> Let me devour it. <laughs> well, it also explains perhaps some of the more violent elements or in this book, specifically the aimed rampant at, dog violence. <laughs> aimed at canines. Which, listen, to be fair to Steinbeck, if I was writing a big old novel... I mean, this novel's not that big. But if I was writing a novel and my freaking dog ate it and I had to start over, I'd be pretty mad at my dog. But apparently Steinbeck was really mad because, man, oh, man, dogs do die a lot in this book. Yeah, like, are there dogs that survive this book? I'm not sure. I think maybe all of the dogs in the U.S. Uh... were killed in this book. There's one old dog that survives, and theoretically there are some puppies that are in a box that survive. As far as we know, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I suppose I uh, can use this as a bridge to talk about the summary really quickly yes. for those who have forgotten. So, it's interesting. I hadn't actually known the bit about the play novel thing, but you can very much tell i think and we'll be able to see in the summary that like things happen in very fixed locations yes characters don't move between those so the uh play opens on two men wandering into this little scene with like some water a tree very picturesque they're on their way to a new job after we discover they had to run away from their old job because one of the characters lenny who is described, and we will get into discussion about <laughs> Lenny and how he's described, but described as this very big, 
man who has some sort of mental disability and he seems to really like the sensory stimulus of like touching soft things so he at one point at the previous job had grabbed onto a girl's skirt because he thought it looked pretty and soft and she panicked and he got so freaked out he couldn't let go and there was a whole debacle she claimed rape so they had to run out and they're now going to this new job and his companion George is coaching him on, you know, how he can't do stuff like that again, how he needs to keep quiet so that doesn't ruin their new job. They introduce a lot of basic background facts. We learn that George has known Lenny for quite some time, and they've been traveling like this for quite some time, and that George knew Lenny's Aunt Clara, who I'm guessing is dead at this point, and a lot of background information is established. And what's also established is it's one of the biggest motifs of the book, This story that George tells Lenny, kind of the same story over and over about how they're going to buy this little plot of land for themselves and raise some crops. Lenny will have rabbits he takes care of and they're going to live off of the fat of the land and not have to work for other people anymore. And they just have to save enough money to do that. So (laughs) after all of that establishing information, we then next see them at the farm that they're hired at in the... Seems like the living quarters for the men. Yeah, the bunk interviewed. House. Yes. And <laughs> we're introduced in succession to a lot of characters, mm-hmm. including Curly, who's the boss's son, and he's a very aggressive, like he's he's very short. I'm not tiny. I'm compact. And he's very much that stereotype of like short guys who like are insecure about their height. And so they want to like beat up other people to show they're tough. And he's been recently married to this uh, very pretty woman who the other, like, farmhands talk about how she's been giving them all the eye. And George says she's jailbait and lots of stuff like that. And then there's also some of the other ranchmen. Slim, who's kind of the leader. Candy, who's an elderly man with only one hand. And he has a very loyal dog that's very old and smelly. (laughs) <laughs> also, one of the other right hands, Carlson, who just seems to be there to fill out the numbers. Uh, he, <laughs> he doesn't really have any distinguishing characteristics, but he tells them a lot of stuff. So he helps move the plot along. I, I just, yeah, I have no idea who he is as a human being. He has a gun. But yes, that's his uh, defining trait. Yes. He has a gun, which well becomes and important. Also, yeah, <laughs> yes. And with that gun, he's also one of the ones who Candy's old dog is. Like I said, really old, and it stinks. And Carlson is done having this dog in his space. We find out that Slim has a dog who's just given birth to puppies, and he's like, Candy, you should take one of those puppies and let us shoot this old dog. It's old, it's in pain, it needs to die. Mm -hmm. And he's like, "Uh, I don't want to. Like, I've had this dog since he was a puppy, blah, blah, blah. And Carlson's like, I'm done living with this dog, and you're cool for keeping it alive. And like, look, you don't have to do it yourself. I'll take it out and shoot it. And eventually, Slim kind of joins in on ganging up on Candy. And so Carlson takes the dog out and uh, puts the dog down. And, yep, and that's the thing that happens. And then... (laughs) (laughs) We should probably mention that we can go into this more, but but you are are a big animal lover. And I think Mm -hmm. you are very particularly sensitive to violence against animals. Yes. I'm I'm much more tough-skinned about that sort of thing. I know that this is going to make me sound like a monster, but when dogs die in movies, I... I usually don't care, but 
<laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that it's also hard to, like, actually talk about this moment because it's just so very clearly, like, a metaphor. Yes, yes. Or, you know, foreshadowing for what's going to happen at the end. So uh-huh. it's hard for me to, like, <laughs> I don't know, do more with the summary because it's just like this is meant to be talking about other things than what's actually happening, which is, like, two men bullying another man into, like, letting them shoot his dog. <laughs> Anywho, after this traumatic experience Candy goes through, he overhears George and Lenny talking about their plans to, you know, get a house and live off the fat of the land. And he says, I have money, like, I'll pitch in and then we can all live there. And George is like, well, if with your money and what we're going to earn by the end of the month here, like, we should have about enough to get the place. So they all get very excited. The next scene, and I think it makes sense to talk about them as scenes, as, like I said, they're very distinct and yeah. in different locations for each other. The next scene is in the stable with the stable buck, who is a black man named Crooks. He has a lot wait, of wait, 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 backstory. Wait. You skipped, uh, actually, a Did very I? important. Yeah, you skipped the confrontation between Lenny and Curly. Did I? Oh, God. Okay. That's yes. okay. Oh. Sorry, the the scenes don't go in. Okay, yeah. So this is kind of confusing because the the next scene is in the same place. It's just a new scene. Right. I've forgotten about this. Yes, Curly attacks Lenny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's this kind of ongoing thing between Curly and his new wife, who goes unnamed the entire book. Where Curly's wife is always going around the farm asking where Curly is, and it seems like a very flimsy excuse just to chat up the boys around the farm and then mm-hmm. curly's always going around after curly's wife has left asking where his wife is and everyone's obnoxious and you know it's annoyed by curly and everything and there's this whole thing about how curly <laughs> curly has a glove full of vaseline God. in order to sexually pleasure his wife or something Yeah, he's keeping his hands soft for her. Which is just the decent thing to do. It's after uh, George, Lenny, and Candy have come up with this plan to get their own farm. And Curly comes in, is like, have you seen my wife? Everyone's like, shut up and go away, you're annoying. Candy's especially confrontational and mocks him for his glove of Vaseline. And Curly feeling... Emasculated? Indeed, that's the word. He's like, I'm going to beat up Lenny now. And so he starts beating up Lenny. Lenny is under very strict orders basically to do nothing. Because anytime he does, apparently they get in trouble. They have to run away. Yada, yada, yada. So Lenny is taking this beating like a champ. And George is like, go get him, dude. And so Lenny, who's super strong, Mm -hmm. crushes Curly's hand. And then they kind of resolve things by saying, we won't tell the story that you got beat up by this guy if you don't tell your father that this happened. And Curly, who's thoroughly emasculated at this point, is like, okay. And then we get to the scene with Crooks in the bar. Yes. Sorry. I did (laughs) totally forget about that moment. Thank you for filling in that gap. But yeah, so... Seems like the rest of the the men have gone off to town, partied up with the prostitutes. Very nice. Good times. And Lenny's been left behind, as has Crooks. 
Um, so Lenny is going to see, uh, Slim has agreed to give Lenny one of the puppies from the litter because Lenny really likes small, soft animals. Um, in the first scene, we see him carrying around a dead mouse because he likes to pet it. But the problem is he always kills the mice he gets because he's too big and strong. And so George is like, maybe you won't kill a puppy. Thus, the puppy. Mm. But yeah, on his way back, because he's been told very strictly not to go handling the puppy too much because the puppy is very young and, you know, needs to be with its mom, etc. He goes into Crux's room. Crux, we've already heard a decent amount about. Like, they tell this whole story in the beginning about how, like, during, like, I think a Christmas Eve party or something, they'd all, like, had a great, grand old time just beating him up. Yeah. And he has, I think, like, a punched back, partially from, seems like, all of the various beatings he's taken and stuff. Yeah, the the story we're told is that he was kicked by a horse as a kid, and that's why he's got a, a crooked back, which is where his nickname comes from, of Crooks. And he's also black. Did we mention that he's black? Yes, I did mention he was okay. black. Okay, yeah. Uh, yes. That's probably That's why they were able. To <laughs> yes. <laughs> part of how they were able to get away with, you know, beating him up as sport. But yeah, so Lenny wanders in. Crooks is like, get out of my room. Lenny, not really reading social cues, is like, why? <laughs> um, and eventually, Crooks just kind of ends up ranting to him because he's obviously very bitter about the life he's lived and all of that. and sees Lenny as like an opportunity to just talk to someone. He's also very lonely and isolated. And eventually Candy ends up wandering in and they tell Crooks about their plan. And it kind of seems like they're winning Crooks over. He's like, well, you know, if you ever need someone to just do little things on the farm, like maybe think about me. But then Curly's wife wanders in again, flirting with the men or doing something. And makes Crooks sort of retreat into his shell because she <laughs> threatens to have him lynched. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so after that he's like, forget about it. I don't want I don't want anything to do with you people. Just get out and leave me alone. So after that, cut to scene of Lenny in the barn, who he's accidentally killed this puppy. And he's trying to figure out what to do because he's like, oh, if George finds out that I've killed my puppy, he won't let me take care of the rabbits. So I need to, like, dispose of the evidence, essentially. But then he's like, oh, but George will know because he always knows, etc., etc. So he's trying to figure out what to do. But again, Curly's wife enters and she starts talking to Lenny. Uh, she, again, I think people over the course of the story tend to find it very easy to talk to Lenny. He's not like a super active conversational partner so they can just kind of like let out their feelings yeah, talk at, him. at him basically yes and she talks a lot about how again she's very lonely she wanted to become a movie star but like various circumstances stopped her from getting anywhere she married curly just to kind of get away from her home environment and but she doesn't really like him and she hates being expected to just stay in the house and she wants to talk with other people which is part of why she goes and tries to interact with the men but then they're all hostile to her and so eventually the conversation starts being a little bit more two-sided <laughs> and she finds out that Lenny likes to you know touch soft things so she's like oh well you should touch my hair it's super soft and he begins petting her hair he's like oh it is very soft and then he begins petting her hair harder to the point where it begins hurting her 
and she panics and tells him to stop and he does that thing again where he grabs on harder. They struggle quite a bit. He ends up killing her. He instantly realizes he has done another bad thing that could get them in trouble and that George would not be happy. So he remembers that they had agreed to meet up at that first spot with the water and the tree in case of anything bad happening. So Lenny runs off to hide there until George can come find him. Curly's wife's body is discovered. They determine pretty quickly that, well, I'm skipping something again. (laughs) (laughs) I believe Candy finds the body first, calls George. They realize who it must have been, and they try and figure out a plan. It becomes clear that they're probably not going to be able to get Letty out of this one. George is like, you know what, let's just let them find the body. We'll make sure that we're not implicated and etc. So then everyone else finds the body. Yeah. They also very quickly figure out it was Lenny. Curly and Carlson are like, all right, time to lynch Lenny. George it has to go kind of along with them to show them that he's not going to basically run off and hide Lenny. Carlson discovers that his gun is missing, and he's like, oh man, I bet Lenny stole it. But they go off to hunt down Lenny, and then we transition back to Lenny at the agreed-upon spot. There's quite a bit of him thinking to himself, sort of talking to himself about, he's remembering his Aunt Clara, he's thinking about all George has done for him, he's thinking about, you know, their plans, and he's like, I could just run away and live on his own, my own, but then he's like, no, I can't actually, it's just something I threatened to do, but like, I never actually would. Eventually, George shows up. And he's like, yay, George, now we can run away. And George is like, look over there, Lenny. Just look over there and let's talk about the fat of the land again. And uh, then he shoots Lenny in the back of the head with Carlson's gun. And yeah, that's <laughs> that's basically the end. To this day, I don't really quite get what Steinbeck was doing with the ending. It's very anticlimactic in a way because Lenny gets shot. He dies. All the other guys show up. Some of them comfort George. Others are like, what's their problem? And then it ends. It's over. Go home. I guess to start, I will say that I think a lot of Steinbeck's appeal, especially with really throughout his entire oeuvre, especially with this book and the book's his subsequent books after this, specifically Grapes of Wrath, is that he's speaking about a class of people that generally were not heralded, I guess, uh, at that time. Mm -hmm. Certainly during the Great Depression, like these were just seen as deadbeats. Mm -hmm. These kind of migrant workers who would go ranch to ranch, work for a month, and then quit and move on. There's a lot of negative stereotypes around these kind of uh, these people and i don't know that period of literature that well to say definitively that he was the only one talking about this but he certainly was the most popular one talking about this writing voices from the working class so i think as we approach this story that's just something to remember that that he's speaking to this working class but also a kind of way of living brought about by dire economic conditions that people very much at that time in America, and still to this day, 
were inclined to blame the individuals for their state of mm-hmm. being rather than the larger economic conditions that forced these people to live in poverty, to take on jobs, paying sub-living wages, and just to try to get by. Yeah, and I I will add that, like, you know, regardless of my personal feelings, like, that doesn't take away from the fact that, like, yes, his writing about these kinds of people and their lives has value. Steinbeck is an important author for the reasons you said, as well as I know a lot of people find him compelling in other areas as well. Whether this particular text has... I don't know. I I haven't read Grapes of Wrath. Mm. I can't talk about it. I just, like, this book is, like, a hundred pages, if that. I got it from the library on my nook, so I don't actually know the proper page length. My version's 107 pages, so yeah, it's it's around Okay. That. Very short. And I... How much within that, like, he's really addressing, like, there's definitely this theme of loneliness throughout, and I think you see in the desperation of of various people to join in on George and Lenny's plan Mm -hmm. to get this house, and the idealization of that vision is definitely saying something about these people and their lives, and that they don't, like, actually want to be living like this necessarily. They want to have a little place of their own and be able to work to so that they we can live and survive and you know be able to do things like they talk about like if there's a little like festival in town we can just go to it and i think that part of it is probably what comes out of this book strongest for me and what i think is the most important part of this book but there's so many other parts of this book that i <laughs> have an issue with that i i'm not sure the value of that outweighs some of the other aspects. And again, this is not me tearing down Steinbeck's entire oeuvre. Uh-huh. Just that, like, there's some stuff in here that really bothered me to the point of me being like, I'm I'm not sure that the literary value of the rest of it, you know, outweighs that. And we'll get into that. <laughs> Maybe to, to focus on, on some of the positives to the takeaways yes. first. It's interesting because I I read an article, like an older article, talking about Of Mice mm. and Men. And it, it, it was an article about like the most recent movie adaptation of it. And it was talking, going through the history of how it started as a book, but it was very much clearly written in a way that was easy to adapt to the stage. But there was this line in this article that made me laugh where he described Steinbeck as apolitical. Oh. I, you know, I... My mom always said, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything no. at all. So I won't say anything about this critic, but he's wrong. <laughs> he's he's not political in a very explicit way, but he is speaking to an economic system that has beaten people down and has forced them to work in these subservient roles to the basically the landowners who who have the power, who have the money. I think there's actually a very small line in here about how the ranch is actually owned by some... It's not even owned by an individual. It's owned by a company. And that's a an idea. Honestly, this book is a lot more interesting seeing it as a precursor to Grapes of Wrath because a lot of the ideas in here that are not fleshed out at all get really fleshed out in Grapes of Wrath and despite what your mom thinks in ways that I think are are, are interesting and worthwhile. <laughs> 
Well, and I mean, like, you brought up the whole communism thing, and, like, certainly George and Lenny's fantasy of, like, living on this little house and just providing enough so that they can survive and, you know, have some quality of life, and then the way that other people kind of get added onto this until it becomes, like, a little, like, commune sort of thing, I think certainly has has shades of that, and uh, you bringing that up gave me context for that fantasy a little bit. It's a shame that uh, we, uh, that wasn't taught in school. You know, that would have been nice to know. Yeah, uh, I do want to just pause here and say that, like, I read this. At, I was 13 years old, uh-huh. like, when I would have been reading this. And I don't think this is a book that is going to necessarily be valuable to 13-year-olds. Yes. Uh, I think that, well, I like, we talked a little bit about how To Kill a Mockingbird, like, I, the older you get, the more you're probably going to find in it to, like, value or at least, like, you know, teach it different ways. I feel like this is a book that very much, like, if you're going to find value in it, it's not going to be when you're 13 or 14. Uh, Indeed. So I was baffled on my reread. Just, like, quite frankly, all of the weird sex stuff I didn't get at 13 or 14. That Like, was that something I should... Like, the whole, like, glove of Vaseline thing, which I fully didn't understand. But, oh, me neither. Yeah. I'm like, really? This is what... This is what we're putting in front of the 13 and 14 year olds. Even the way Curly's wife is depicted, I just yes. didn't understand. Certainly at the time did not understand what the significance of any of the innuendo and the subtext mm-hmm. around her was. Although like on this this read, it certainly is not. It's not subtle. No. But 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 but. But I'm not for bots. I do want to speak to something you said uh, about how much like To Kill a Mockingbird, the older you get, the more you appreciate certain things. And there, there's uh, at least one passage I want to read that I think really encapsulates the central theme of what George and Lenny wants and what basically every character, working class character wants in this book. Let me read it now. Guys like us that work on ranches are the loneliest guys in the world. They got no family. They don't belong no place. They come to a ranch and work up a stake, and then they go into town and blow their stake. And the first thing you know, they're pounding their tail on some other ranch. They ain't got nothing to look ahead to. Lenny was delighted. That's it. That's it. Now tell how it is with us, George went on. With us, it ain't like that. We got a future. We got somebody to talk to that gives a damn about us. We don't have to sit in no bar room blowing in our jack just because we got no place else to go. If them other guys gets in jail, they can rot for all anybody gives a damn. But not us. Lenny broke in. But not us. And why? Because, because I got you to look after me and you got me to look after you. And that's why. Do I need to read? No, that's it. Okay. <laughs> uh... And then there's another line later on in the book where they explain that the reason they want this land is we just live there. We would belong there. So I think between those two passages, it really just gets at this idea what the American dream is supposed to mean, basically. Mm. And just having that sense of independence, that sense of self-reliance. Steinbeck through his own experiences, because he actually worked on a ranch along alongside migrant workers, so he had a lot of personal experience with this, 
he saw that there was a subset of American society that had no access to that kind of ideal of America. And it's funny because, <laughs> I mean, like last week, you and I were talking about how the struggle we face in buying a home mm. or just being able to support ourselves <sighs> at all, have any kind of financial security at all going forward. And I think that this is something our generation and probably future generations are going to feel very, very hard. We're living in a, a place that a lot of people just aren't able to get access to that. But yeah, so I think it, this book is getting at something that's the idea of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, right? Mm. Being able to make something of yourself. And for them, and for a lot of people, that means having a place that you can call home, where you don't have to worry about being kicked out by a landlord, uh, your boss, people who have some kind of control over you. And I think that's a very important message, and it really resonates to this day. Probably the most interesting moment in the book involves Crooks and his backstory, how he demonstrates that the American dream is a farce. Yeah, I mean, I agree that, like, it's nice to have a deconstruction of the American dream. Although I would argue that I think that George and Lenny's version of the American dream is a little bit different than the typical one we get, because I think that a lot of times, and I don't know how much this is a more, like, modern evolution of it, but it's not just about, the American dream isn't just about, like, being able to make enough money to support yourself and be independent. The whole idea, I think, is also that you are then building something that can be, like, past dance it's very like capitalist like you're building this business that will then will go on for generations and blah blah and you're a self-made businessman versus they just want a little house where they can support themselves and not they're not looking to build a business they're looking to build a sustainable home mm -hmm. so i do think it is an interesting variation especially like when you compare this with the other novel that I think gets brought up a lot about America. This is going to be my second Gatsby reference. I don't even like Gatsby. <laughs> but, like, that's the other American dream novel, right? And that's much more about, like, money. <laughs> so I, I do think that it's an interesting, like, both deconstruction of it and that, like, we're shown that that just isn't available to a lot of people, but also deconstruction and that we're seeing a different version of the dream. <laughs> Again, I'm going to argue I'm not sure it's doing... Okay, so if I am a lazy reader, and let's say uh -huh. I'm a lazy reader, or I'm a 13-year-old who, yeah. like, just doesn't have the skills, <laughs> yes. right? Like, it would be very easy for me to argue, well, like, yeah, Crooks can't have it because he's black, but that was, like, back then, blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure that, like, To Kill a Mockingbird, obviously, we drew a lot of comparisons with how white racism still operates the same way today. And I, it's not that I think Crooks' story is, like, totally unapplicable but i think it would be easier for people to dismiss as like this is not something that would right. happen today we've solved we've solved racism and then similarly like george candy and lenny's dream gets taken away from them not necessarily because they realize the futility of it but like lenny murders someone although it is trying to deconstruct it some of the other messaging makes it very easy to not read it that way that makes sense. Oh, it does make sense. I I think Steinbeck's, he has blind spots. 
And you see this in other fiction that he's written where he doesn't quite know how to write about minorities. I mean, his books aren't the most diverse, but they there is representation. And in some cases, I think really cool representation. But it's certainly no To Kill a Mockingbird. It does not have that same staying power. I, so I guess the, the thing I found interesting about Crooks is mm. that in learning about his backstory, we learn that his father actually owned a ranch. It was a, a, a relatively a small ranch. It was just 10 acres. And we're not told what happened, but it's very heavily suggested that his family lost that land and it was because of white people. To me, it reflects this whole how how the idea of owning land as your means of getting out of achieving your dreams is is a pipe dream. Literally, Crooks and his family achieved that dream and it still wasn't enough. The system itself is the problem. You you can't operate within the system and win because the house always wins. Yeah. So to me, that that whole scene learning about Crooks, hearing how bitter he is with the way he's treated, with the way his family was treated, with what he's lost, with how lonely he is. You get to see a lot of elements of pushing back on this dream that, in that scene in particular, Candy and Lenny are really, really pushing. They're going to get this house. They're going to they're gonna live off the fat of the land. Cro- <laughs> I think Crooks literally says, nobody ever gets to heaven. I I hear your point that moment certainly doesn't resonate beyond and I and I think you're right that there's a danger of reading it as well we have solved this problem so we don't have to think about it anymore cuz this was back in the great depression when it's it's certainly a lot more complicated and I wish that that Steinbeck was more willing to get into those complications but again that was just one of his blind spots. I just don't know if he really knew how to talk about those issues. I mean, I think it's really interesting that, like, that scene in uh, the stables in Crooks's room is, like, entirely populated by the most disenfranchised, the word I want, <laughs> characters. Almost like they're the outcasts of right. the ranch. So we've got Crooks, who's, like, obviously black, Candy has lost a hand and he's older. Lenny has some kind of mental disability. Um, And then the one who comes in and kind of breaks up the party is obviously Curly's wife. The single woman of this story. Yeah. Huzzah for her. And so, like, it is interesting that, like, the three of them, when Crooks does allow himself to be drawn in, it's, I think, because he does sense that, you know, in some way, too, these men are outsiders, but, like, obviously in a very different way than him. Right. Which, like, they're accepted by the other men and characters, and I think that's part of what makes him draw back and what Curly's wife makes him realize, like, re-realize, is, you know, like, her behavior, like, she's deliberately trying to make them angry. She's being very antagonistic, but she's also driving this wedge between them in reminding Kirks of, like, what exactly she can do to him because of, like, his position in life and his race. So I, I think there's something interesting about that scene, I agree, in terms of, without George there, <laughs> it's interesting <laughs> to see these characters that are outcasts, like you said, in some way, trying to come up with this dream and then having it 
the the eye glamour or not the glamour of it, but the illusion of being able to have it being torn away from them. And perhaps that's the problem because there seems to be some suggestion that by Steinbeck that the 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 context of all these three different characters are the same. But that's just not true. Candy has more rights than crooks and certainly Lenny has more rights than crooks what Steinbeck is trying to get at is very very interesting and and I think that there's the whole premise of that scene is really cool how do these characters who in so many different ways are either oppressed or silenced their voices have been silenced in some ways literally with Lenny like he is told not to speak up and finally, he has a scene where he can speak freely without anyone telling him to shut up. I mean, Crooks tries to tell him to shut up, but he, Lenny doesn't listen. It's a cool concept that I, I think the conclusions. It's not that they're not correct, because I, I think that it's it's just an interesting perspective, but I just don't think there's something about them that doesn't quite mesh with how things actually work. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Stick around for all the hot takes on Curly's wife and Lenny next week on Reread. See you then. Oh, 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 oh,